Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Shared history. History. You're gonna like the way you look. I guarantee it. You guarantee it. That's nope. That's a bold statement, and it's probably a lie because history I'm... looking back on itself probably ain't too happy with the way it's behaved. Well, I'm gonna take you to court because you said you guarantee it in the slogan, and that <laughs> is my right. I think so. <laughs> yeah, you're I mean. I'm sure that would hold up in court. So what do you want, Natalie? Let's just settle this here. Oh, um, oh, I want you to replace every person in a history book named John with me. Done. That's great. Natalie oh Adams. That kind of rolls off the tongue. Natalie right. Adams. And I wanna... history was better for it. Pour me a nice cool pint of Natalie Adams. Ooh. A tall glass of Natalie Adams? <laughs> Natalie Adams. I don't know why I love that so much. I feel like that's someone that uh, Fanny Pemberton would have hung out with. Oh, yes. Fanny Pemberton and Natalie Adams. What mischief are you getting into this week, Natalie Pemberton? <laughs> I said Natalie Pemberton. And hey, Natalie. A... Natalie, do you want to hear about some history? I would love to hear about some history. <laughs> Let me stop. ask Fanny Pemberton. Fanny, would you like to hear about some history? Oh, I would do. You need to you need to stop drinking so much Sam Adams before and during. Sam Adams. His- never heard of him. <laughs> um, someone else you may have never heard of is someone I'm really excited to talk about. Ooh, we got a person. We got a person. We got a groundbreaker. We got a hero. It also involves ballet. Are you obsessed with ballet too? I'm obsessed with ballet. It's tap dance and ballet. I don't know how to do either. I did buy some tap shoes. I've been told I'm not allowed to tap in the house, which doesn't seem fair to me. But I'm also obsessed with ballet. There are, are weirdly kind of a lot of ballet movies and I've seen all of them. Wait, before we go on, have you watched Save the Last Dance recently? Or at least if you rewatched her audition dance. I actually, I rewatched just that part and I've been thinking about it the entire it's time. It's not I've been, good. It's not good. And it's, it's for goddamn good. Juilliard. I know. And the judges like, or the auditors like actually look like they're very impressed. And I'm like, what are you doing, Julia Stiles? She brought a chair into her audition for Juilliard. You only bring a chair if you're a Backstreet Boy. Or if Flashdance, Flashdance, I will also allow a chair, but it wasn't about the chair in Flashdance. You know what? It's about the chair. For Backstreet Boys and Flashdance, they use the hell out of that chair. Julia like awkwardly drags it on and she sits in it. Like I guess I'm supposed to do this now? She sits (laughs) in it and bounces off it once and then great, now there's a chair in your dance space. I have a lot of notes, Julia. I have a lot of notes. Yeah. And they are seemingly going to be very different from that one auditor that was impressed. And they're also very focused on the chair and the chair work. 
I'm going to write a letter to Juilliard and be like, who the fuck was this auditor? And why is he letting her in Juilliard? Right? That that movie gave so many people undue confidence to audition for Juilliard. And to hip-hop dance. Well, yes. Like, There's just... a lot of things that give people undue confidence to hip-hop dance. That's a rabbit hole I go down on the YouTubes quite often, is watching uh, videos from those... Um, from different dance studios in Los Angeles or ooh there's those there's those guys who all dance in heels and it's beautiful <gasps> I know what you're talking about okay yes it's beautiful there's wait who's the who's the the ballet dancer and he like he's wearing like 8 inch stilettos on like platform heels on a treadmill and he's also doing like on point in like platform stiletto heels I'm not and landing jumps I'm not 100% sure who you're talking about, but I'm going to assume it's James Whiteside of the American Ballet Theater because mm. I love him. I love him. His calves, especially in those heels, scare me. I'm like, they're they're rippling. They're going to pop. No, this is a this is a different dancer and I can't think of his name, but I'll figure it out because he's phenomenal. Great. Our YouTube, our YouTube channel has playlists of things that we mention, and it, sometimes they have to do with our topics, and sometimes they're just lots of videos of dancers. Yeah, I'm okay with it. But I'm not here to talk about them. I'm okay. not here to talk about... It's not about them. It's not about Juilliard. It's not about fucking Julia Stiles. I shouldn't say that. She didn't choreograph it. <laughs> it's not her fault. It's not her fault. I'm here to talk to you about Maria Tallchief who was okay. America's first prima ballerina. She was also the first Native American prima ballerina in the United States, which I love because it means that everyone after her was like, well, I was the first white ballerina in the United States. Well, she, I assume that that means she was the first Native American prima ballerina like anywhere. Uh, yes. Unless there were like Native American prima ballerinas like abroad before there were them in the United States. Yeah, I think she was the first. Um, she was of the Osage Nation and she was, I believe, the first Native American prima ballerina. Well, ever. she sounds awesome. I'm she was, here for this. She was the first American to dance, American ballet ballerina to dance at the Paris Opera. <gasps> so fancy. She She just ticked all the boxes. Did she, she make the it. phantom? She was the phantom. <gasps> <gasps> Twist. <laughs> no, she didn't. Oh. But can we talk about Meg for a second? <laughs> can we just? Of all of the things in that musical, the thing that I just can't get behind is Meg. I'm just like, shut up, Meg. Why are you letting your friend go down to the basement? Why are you? I don't know. She friends just is don't kind let of like... friends go down into the basement. She's just given off real and Peggy vibes and don't take it on Peggy. It's not Peggy's fault, but like, it's but just, it is Meg's fault. It is it's Meg's 100% fault. Meg's fault. <laughs> Going on the record. Tell me about Maria. Yes. So Maria was actually born Elizabeth Marie Tall Chief. Tall and Chief were two words. That's important later. She was... How tall was she? Don't don't answer that. We're not answering that <laughs> question. <laughs> she was very tall. Actually, one of the things she was known for was working with a specific choreographer who, like, 
changed her body to elongate it and like change the center of gravity and she she long she's you're long. killing me you're killing me because you're talking about posture and you're gesturing about posture and i'm so slumped over right <laughs> now. now i'm like i must sit up right this will last yeah. two minutes i'm i'm laying down on the floor so i i'm not much better <laughs> i'm not but you could be yes but uh, yes born originally elizabeth marie Tallchief on january 24th 1925 oh wait also we're in the 20s we're in the 20s uh, ballet started hella late in the americas is it because we lack discipline <laughs> 100% would not be surprised at all. Because ballet started in France in like 1600s, 1700s. I don't know. Sure. It's old. It's old. It's super Russian, even though it's super French. And nothing was going on in the Americas until kind of the 30s. No professional ballet academies, no reputable nada. She was born in Fairfax, Oklahoma. Her grandfather's name was, get this, Peter Cassidy Big Heart. Oh, okay, yeah. but I'm going to start calling you Cassidy Big Heart now. I'm okay with that. Okay. As long as you don't call me casserole, because apparently people have started, have taken to calling me casserole. Well, now I'm going to call you casserole Big Heart. And it's just, I just feel like it's too late in life to be given that nickname. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll accept Big Heart. Peter Big Heart was one of the people from the Osage Nation who negotiated the oil reserves in Oklahoma on the Osage land. So did they get screwed in that negotiation? Or? They they did not, surprisingly. Okay, good. Or good least, job, Peter. At least in this in this specific time bubble, because it enriched the Osage Nation. It helped out the people a lot and Peter Bigheart's son, Alexander Tallchief, Maria's father, actually grew up very rich. She grew up with like a huge, mm. like terracotta house that overlooked the reservation. And they would go to Colorado Springs in the summer. And oh, if you're if you summer places, you fancy. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I mean, like if you do, if you take ballet, you fancy. You ballet you, ballet is expensive. Ballet is expensive. Expensive. And her mother, Ruth Porter, she grew up very poor. Um, she was from a, a Irish-Scottish family um, who I believe immigrated over. She had no money. She wanted to take music lessons. She wanted to take dance lessons. And she couldn't. So she was insistent that her daughters, Elizabeth and Marjorie, Marjorie was Elizabeth's younger sister, that they were able to have the things that she did not so when I'm going to interchangeably be calling her Maria and Elizabeth. Also, I, I'm sure it'll make sense later. Uh, yeah. Also, people called her Betty Marie, which just sounds silly. Are you going to interchangeably be calling her Betty Marie, Maria and Elizabeth? Or are we? Are we... Oh, 100%. I will be doing oh, all, cool, cool, cool. All, all right. the above. All right, these are all the same person. Yes. In in the research, like, some of it says Maria the whole time. Some of it says, like, chronologically as her life mm -hmm. changes what they called her in that time. So 
I'm jumping around, so who knows? But Betty Marie Elizabeth Maria, tall chief. <laughs> Shit. You're not, you're not going to want I give you permission to not keep doing that. Yes. Uh, Maria. Maria was enrolled in ballet classes at the age of spring. At the age of three in Colorado Springs when they would visit. She had a teacher whose name was Mrs. Sabine, who Maria did not like. She's like, she's an awful teacher. And it's it's a miracle that I wasn't permanently harmed. I feel like she's, Sabine is like a mean girl's name. Yeah. Like she's like bossy. <laughs> or like, like Mrs. Sabine was from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I bet her name's like Rachel or something. But she's like, I want to sound French for these classes. Sabine. I'll take it. I don't know. But either way, we don't like her. So Maria was enrolled in classes at the age of three. And Mrs. Sabine threw her onto point shoes immediately. No, no, which no. Is a, which is a big no-no, people. If you don't know what point shoes are, most of the time when you're seeing ballerinas, they're on point. They It's basically a three to four inch block of wood surrounded by pretty silk no cushioning and you are going straight up and down your toe is just hanging out on wood is bad for your little three-year-old undeveloped for your adult feet yeah (laughs) i don't know if you know this but the shelf life of a ballerina career is not long because it is so physically taxing so physically demanding and the one of the main things you do is literally your downfall (laughs) yeah so there, I don't know what age it's supposed to be, but you're not supposed to put kids on point until, I don't know, probably eight? I don't know. Nine, knowing like knowing you and I, we were both still like falling over at three. Don't put us on our tippy toes. We can't Natalie, walk on our feet. You still fall over. I was going to say, Natalie, I'm 30 years old and barely have ACLs. No way in hell I'm going on point. <laughs> so the family was like throwing their their time and their effort into getting Maria and Marjorie into dance. They ended up moving to LA because they had the idea that, that maybe she could do Hollywood movies, Hollywood musicals, get her on film. They moved to LA. Get her on a dance studio's YouTube channel so that I can binge watch her as an adult. Oh my gosh. She's on YouTube. So she died in 2013. So she... Oh. She was was around very recently. There's... That's interviews pushing, with her. I was going to say it's pushing 90, but that's not how math works. 25. That's pushing 80. 23. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was 83. This is old. not shared mathematics. <laughs> it is because we need to cheat off each other. We need to share those answers. Oh, yeah, yeah. But there's videos on YouTube of her her signature dance, and it's phenomenal. I did she don't... drag a chair into the middle of it half-heartedly? She did, but man, I think it's going to get her she into Juilliard. She used it. She used the chair. <laughs> this is I, after she trained with, you know, famed choreographer and dance instructors, Kevin Richardson, Brian Littrell, Nick Carter. The, oh, the Backstreet Boys? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Howie D and AJ McLean. At Juilliard sure School I... for boy bands? Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> holy shit. That, that's where I want to go. That's a dream right there. Yeah. There's Flashdance and and Juilliard School for Boy Bands. I want to audition for those things. 
do you think that I just can get in because I deserve to be there? Like, because it's in my blood. I'm waiting for my owl to come and tell me that I'm getting in to Juilliard School for boy bands. It actually went defunct a while back, (gasps) but... Is it because it was K-pop run... has brought it alive? Oh, okay, good. I was Don't they say... have like boy bands with like twelve people on it? Uh, yes. They also they also have like more co-ed bands than I feel like America was ever known for. Did it go defunct for a while because Lou Pearlman was um, stealing all the money? Yeah, and you know what? It was tearing up everyone's heart. So they're like, "We got to go." Wow. Um. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. NSYNC did ruin the Juilliard School of Boy Bands. I don't know the difference between the two, but it's not Not about that. I'm going to cut Natalie off because if I start talking bad or wrong about Backstreet Boys, she will not be friends with me anymore. We are already on a very thin, thin ice. And we're on point. (laughs) So we're just slipping everywhere. (laughs) But pivoting back, Oh, a pivot? A plié. A plié. A A Uh, She moved to Los Angeles. She was also, like, hella smart. When she was in Oklahoma, she, like, jumped a bunch of grades. And then when she went to Oklahoma, to L.A., they're like, no, you got to go back to your appropriate age group class, but we'll give you, like, talented and gifted classes to challenge you or whatever. Well, it didn't challenge her. She said she was very bored, and she started studying with a a new dance instructor, Ernest Belcher, who basically was like, girl, you're all wrong. Everything you've been taught, the basics, scrap it. We need to start from scratch. God damn it, Miss Sabine. Miss Sabine ruined everything. But no, she didn't. I was going to say, clearly not, because I know already that she's going to be a prima ballerina. She's going to be super successful and great. But it's, it's not unusual to be loved by you. It's not unusual. Stop. <laughs> I had to. I didn't, but I did it. It's it's not unusual to start anything, whether it's dance, sports, at a young age. She started at the age of three, but usually when you do that, it's either because your parents are like, I don't want to pay for daycare and they're going to tucker you out, or I just want to get you out of the house. Go run around a soccer field and pretend mm. to play soccer. Or it's, I want my kid to be really good. We're actually doing the work. So when you get to the age of like eight or nine, when you've been dancing since the age of three and your new teacher is like, we're starting over. That's not easy. That's Mm -hmm. also super frustrating. Retraining yourself out of technique is hort, hort. But this was a very good teacher. And she learned a lot from him. She also, since she wasn't being challenged in school, she learned a lot of different kinds of dance too. She learned tap dance, Spanish dance, uh, acrobatics, tumbling, stuff like that. And she was able to widen her scope as well. She also met a dance instructor and and renowned choreographer, Bronislava Nijinska, who Maria- That's a Russian name. That's a Russian name. But was she really Russian? I feel like if your first name is Bronislava, you probably are. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you would choose that for yourself. Nah. Um, when she was 12 years old, she met Nijinska and was just kind of enamored with her. She's like, that's what a ballerina should be. The perfect frame, body type, technique, everything. The way she carries herself and kind of threw herself in a ballet at this point. 
She was like, I'm not stopping at an, an hour and a half lesson. I'm living this. I'm going home and I'm practicing. I'm adjusting my life around this art form. And she said, now my goal was different when she started working with her. She, she actually did get in like a Hollywood movie. I think something with Judy Garland. Yeah, she, she had a bit part in presenting Lily Mars, an MGM musical with Judy Garland. Uh, she didn't like it. She's like, this is not for me. I'm not really dancing. It's not challenging. This dumb. She moved to New York where there was more of an opportunity. The Ballet Russe, which was a Russian school, Russian ballet company that was centered in Paris that toured in America. Russe means Russian and French. But yeah, it's confusing. It, it's okay. like, I, I think some... I trust Ru- you. <laughs> the, the person who started was Russian and they wanted it to be a, a Russian company, but there was a lot of turmoil and strife in going Russia? on in Never. Russia. Oh, I know, right? So they ended up moving it to Paris and then it kind of just stuck there. And they, I mean, you got Russian ballerinas, ballet dancers dancing in France. Like, it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. You get the best of both worlds. I thought it. I thought it, <laughs> but I didn't sing it. And that's where you and I differ, Natalie. Uh, that is. I'm going to sing it. Hey, Nat, uh, can I talk about Iowa for a minute? Honestly, I'm shocked you're even asking for permission this time. It's just that this podcast is sponsored by Raygun, and they're headquartered in Iowa. Yeah, but they're bigger than Iowa. They're the greatest store in the universe. Oh, really? Who called them that? Raygun did. Checks out. All I'm saying is don't limit Raygun's excellence to just Iowa. I mean, they've got brick and mortar stores in six cities and like an online empire. They're super important to the fabric of the entire universe. Their t-shirts are like the second most important element and they gain on oxygen like every day. That's true. Also, they are super modest. They are. It's truly awe-inspiring. Gosh, Raygun's just so great. Right? And this is an ad paid for by them. So go check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code SHERIALATER to save on your next order. Uh, Now, can I talk about Iowa? Oh, look, we're out of time. Valley Roos was traveling in America. There's still no American ballet anything. Mm -hmm. It's just Russians and French people, those companies coming over and kind of doing little, little tours. Some Americans were invited to perform with them, and they hated it. They're like, stupid Americans, you don't know how to ballot. (laughs) And she met a choreographer named George Balanchine. He was really well known, and in 1944, he went over to choreograph something at the Paris Opera because... They had a little bit of, let's say, restructuring because the person who was choreographing or running it um, was accused of maybe having ties to the Nazis. Oh, and it's like, we don't we don't like that. Let's thank you. Let's get him out of here. So they brought George Balanchine over. Balanchine had like new ideas for ballet, not new ideas, but different He wasn't trying to change ballet. He was trying to elevate it in a different way. So there are different techniques. Um, The French is the like the original 
ballet. If you say something like a plie, it means the same thing everywhere. It was, was founded there, in. Was like the Russian just like more intense because I feel like I feel like Russians gravitated towards ballet because they were like, oh, this is beautiful and intimidating, just like me. <laughs> well, actually, so Russia had this amazing court and an amazing kind of, I don't know, not renaissance or whatever, but they were obsessed with Paris. They Francophiles. They, if it was mm-hmm. French, they wanted to do it. Their courts in, I don't know, like 1700s or whatever, like you spoke French. It wasn't the national language, but if you were of the elite, you spoke French, you were speaking it to everyone. Russian was almost your second language. So I think, and this might not be true, I think that they so obsessed with France and everything that they're like, we want, we want ballet. Oh, but now we want to do the best ballet. And it kind of morphed into a Russian style. So French is the codified technique. It's Mm -hmm. the thing everyone's doing. It's known for fluidity, elegant and clean lines, technical precision, gracefulness, and fast footwork. The Russian style is flexibility, strength, and endurance. So they're doing like a lot of probably like jumps and stuff, things you have to be really strong for a lot of lifts and they're doing it the whole time. Like you gonna be toyered at the end. The American style is kind of common for anything that America does. It's athletic, speed, difficult physical feats. Uh, So like they say like deep plie is like anything we do, we're gonna do it so that it's very athletic Mm -hmm. and we're strong uh, ballerinas even though we all have to be like seven pounds and dainty. So Balanchine had this very kind of American style of like strength and kind of depth to that, which Maria Talchief took on right away. She met him in New York. She started understudying and getting solos and doing really well. And people were like, I don't like that. Because I'm racist. Because I'm racist. When she was in LA, she actually changed her name as as a kid. She had such, there was such horrible discrimination against her that her name Tall Chief, which was two words, she smushed it into one, Tall Chief. So I think the thinking was it doesn't look as Mm -hmm. Native American when it's all one word. And she did that to kind of mitigate some of the racism she was experiencing. She was kind of killing it in New York and people were like, you should change your last name to make it sound more Russian. You should change it to Talcheva. And she was like, nah, I'm not going to do it. I am proud of my heritage. I'm proud to be Native American. And so she kept Talchief as her last name, but she did change her first name to Maria, which. Okay. So that's where the third name comes in. That's where Maria comes from. Probably should have just said that in the beginning. Anyway, Balanchine like latches onto Tall Chief. She is the inspiration for like a lot of things he's going to choreograph. He's kind of uh, molding her and not giving her all these lead spots yet, but he's given her the solos. He's given her the understudy spots. And she had quite a few situations where she had to understudy for the Prima and killed it. And they were writing reviews about her, about like, her form, her technique, how amazing she was. And for as much racism- As an understudy? Yup. Uh-uh, that's about trouble. Yeah. For as much racism as there was, it seems a lot of it was like kind of just petty Russians and French don't like Americans. 
But there was a lot of, obviously, racism against Native Americans. But for the most part, it doesn't seem like she was kind of fetishized or, look, we've got a Native American. She danced at the Paris Opera and she's the first American to ever dance ballet at the Paris Opera, which is huge. Yeah. And there was, I guess, like one headline that said, I don't even like saying the word, like red face diva dances at. And so. It's icky. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Um, but my point is that she wasn't like a sideshow. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, this is interesting and blah, blah, blah. It was just she was a really fucking good dancer and she also happened to be Native American. And I don't want to say she had an easy go of it, but her talent and her skill and her work ethic outshone anything that could have taken away from her skill. And it was really cool to see that addressed. Mm-hmm. So she goes to Paris. She's dancing. Balanchine is there. They come back to New York. And in 1946, Balanchine starts to create the New York City Ballet. In 1948, it becomes official. It's still going on uh, today, I believe. I, I thought maybe it had changed names, but I don't think it did. And he casts her in Firebird, like the, the ballet spot you want. The Sugar Plum Fairy and the Nutcracker. This tiny little obscure ballet, you know, the Nutcracker, which no one had really seen and no one really thought much of. And he created the American classic it is today. And she made the Sugar Plum Fairy what it is today. I wish that she was the Rat King or whatever. That it, isn't no, that Natalie, the because you made what the Rat King is today. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment. I'm taking it as one. (laughs) Look, Mom, I'm the Rat King. We're not going to put you on point, though. We'll just throw you on a chair and give you you a little sword and a crown. Hell yeah. Do I get a (laughs) fedora? Can I also dance with a hat? If you can dance with a chair and a hat, that's what they teach you at Juilliard School. That's how you get into Juilliard. (laughs) But Julia was missing. She was missing that. She was missing the hat. (laughs) Um... Maria was just crushing it. Balanchine was creating dances for her that, quote-unquote, revolutionized ballet. They were demanding athleticism, speed, aggressive dancing. When you watch videos of her, it is it is so impressive. And the first thing I thought of was that she reminds me of kind of Misty Copeland because she just looks strong. And Misty Copeland talks a lot about who, if you don't know who Misty Copeland is, get out from under your rock but she was she was the was first the... african-american principal dancer for the american ballet theater that's right and she talks a lot about how it was not only difficult being a black woman in ballet but she i she's like i have an athletic frame i have strong legs i was not the body type they wanted they didn't want to cast me for anything but again work ethic skill technique everything and she started doing leaps and everything that no one else could do when tall chief like when you look at her dancing like she just has these really strong looking shoulders very strong back which i feel like a lot of ballet dancers like you would kind of say that just because they're so small and frail you can see every muscle but she just performs with such like such a steady like balanced core and 
her arms are just, it's like that Michael Jordan poster where he's spreading his arms out. Just lines for days. She looks amazing. She's killing it. Doing very difficult technical work. One of the critics of her performance of Firebird said that Maria Tallchief made an electrifying appearance, emerging as the nearest approximation to a prima ballerina that we had yet enjoyed. There's interviews with her where she's talking about, I think it was Firebird, because it was the first one that they put out with this new company. And she's like, we didn't even, we weren't even thinking about, is this going to be good or not? I just want to dance it well. And it's really hard. I want to make sure I get this right. And that when she performed it and they finished, she said it sounded like a football stadium, that it was so loud. And she said that they were kind of down to the wire, that they hadn't practiced bows, which I, I feel mean, like... That resonates with me on a very, like, very real level. That seems like something that's... I mean, the show's done. You just go bow. But if you finished a show... And also, like, a ballet. Like, yeah. everything that you've just done for the last two plus hours has been precision choreographed yes. if you, you go can't to have a sloppy bow <laughs> nobody loves a sloppy bow nobody loves a sloppy bow <laughs> my high school theater director would we would spend an amount of like an, a not nothing amount of time on the bows because he hated a sloppy bow and i respected the, him like crazy for it I hate performing with improvisers when you Floppiest need to do a bows. bow. And there's like, well, let's go out there and bow. It's like, no, that looks so shoddy. We just did 40 minutes of shitty improv. Let's at least look professional. Let's at least stick the landing. But if you go see a musical, a ballet, a play, anything, it's something that I, I feel like theater go goers don't think about a lot. They rehearsed the bows. Mm -hmm. That's not really anything about this, but it, that is something that it's just... Some people don't think about that, that mm -hmm. is something that you rehearse. And I guarantee you, your choreographer, if you have an amazing show, but fuck up the bowels, they're gonna let you know. Yep. So there's this great picture of her where Balanchine is like pulling her back on stage and she's like, I don't know what's going on. And it's really cute. She actually married George Balanchine, but they got it annulled like six years later. <laughs> Which she also married someone from one of her early companies. It's like ballet companies get a little incestuous. You start dating everyone. Everyone's dating everyone. Um, she had a daughter. She's actually able to dance with her daughter at one point, I believe. Oh. And just had like an amazing career. She performed at a bunch of companies, but with New York City Ballet until 1960. She said she, she didn't want to play past her prime. The end of any kind of career, whether it's music, athletics, dance, whatever, there is that kind of balancing act of, I love this and I want to keep doing it. I don't want to be to not do this at my best. Mm -hmm. I don't want to watch my own decline well, and feel it. I feel like ballet has an especially like short career because yeah. of how hard it is on your body. And then how demanding it just is in a variety of ways. Yeah. And they are not good to their bodies physically and as well as diet. Like she, it says when she started dancing with, I think it was Balanchine, she dropped 10 pounds. 
I guarantee you she's probably already too small to begin with, dropping 10 pounds and then continuing to have this athletic stamina and, and technique that was being called of her. It's We could talk about eating disorders in dance forever. Um, it's very sad. It's very, it's, it's, it's tricky, you know? And mm-hmm. it's one of the, the sad parts about such a beautiful art form. And any, again, with athletics yeah. and any kind of performative, whatever, it's, it is part of it. Um, I didn't find anything that said she had an eating disorder. But when I heard she dropped 10 pounds, I was like, that's, man, they're not, so rough on their body. Not healthy, yeah. That's bad for your heart. It's bad for everything. Yeah. And your bones. And you got to keep your bones strong. Yeah, especially if you're teetering on your toe bone on a wooden block. <laughs> yes, uh after she retired from dancing i almost asked if you had heard of maria Tallchief before because of this next bit when she retired she moved to chicago where her husband lived and she served as a director of ballet for the lyric opera of chicago from 1973 to 1979 in 1974 she founded lyric opera's ballet school where she taught the balancing technique and it ended up closing in 1981 but they said, I have a quote that says, uh, she's a force in the history of Chicago dance and arguably increased the popularity of dance in Chicago. Oh, you brought it to Chicago. I brought it to Chicago. That's the way to my heart. Yeah. Uh, there's a, speaking of, well, not Juilliard, but Joffrey, the Joffrey Ballet. One of the artistic directors said, when you watch Tall Chief on video, you see that aside from the technical polish, there's a burning passion she brought to her dancing. And it just, it comes through. I feel like a lot of times there's difficult technique. It's like, obviously they're doing real good dance and it's athletic and it's not easy, but they kind of just have that, I'm the facial, the acting, there is acting Mm -hmm. involved in ballet. And sometimes it just looks like you're doing dance moves. Some of the stuff that I saw, footwork was seemingly kind of simple, just the part of the dance she was in. But even when she wasn't doing it, anything, it said she was a master of the pause, of having silence and stillness and drawing the audience in, which I love a good pause, especially in improv, because people think they need to talk all the time. Mm-hmm. She was just, she, her acting and her passion and just watching her face it wasn't just in her face. It was her whole body. It's it's so great to watch. She died in uh, 2013 um, from complications. She broke her hip. But she was always really close to her, her Osage roots, speaking about stereotypes, mis- misconceptions, racism, everything. It's cool to see someone not come into an already established whitewashed thing and be groundbreaking like she was there at the beginning yeah and she paved the way for women of color any sort of person of color in ballet in the dance world it is not very diverse and there's been a lot in the past few years misty copeland has done amazing things for the dance world and now you're starting to see uh the big thing right now is point shoes and ballet shoes are now being made in different hues and different colors Mm -hmm. because they were just this pale pale pink yeah and And so and and performers of color would have to hand dye their point mm -hmm. shoes and they there's that's hard to do and that's it's already expensive it's It's already demanding it's silk these are expensive shoes that you're tearing up anyway 
And now you have to add, like, I'm going to dye this. I'm going to do it myself. And hope that it matches perfectly. And it's also really fucking condescending. Yeah. You know? It's like, okay, you can ballet, but... I'm a professional but... ballerina. Does this have... Or even I'm a, I'm a ballerina. I'm a ballerina in training. I don't need a DIY project on top of it. Yeah. And an- another modern day, sort of modern day ballerina, Raven Wilkinson, who was pioneering African-American ballet dancer who Misty Copeland actually met and did interviews with. She spoke at her memorial service. Um, She was a huge inspiration for her. Raven was told to paint her face white during some performances. I don't know if she actually did it, but it like, come on, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. She's just a, a beautiful dancer, a beautiful soul. Maria Tallchief just fucking crushed it, knocked it out of the water, and I'm sure we will put some stuff on our Instagram. I know we'll tag it in the YouTube video, but go over to our YouTube and watch because she is amazing to watch. And there's actually filmed recording of her doing it. That's beautiful. What a beautiful story. Yeah. I don't have a great segue, so I'm going to just pivot. Pirouette. Oh, I went... Damn it, I stepped I all went, over that. I went fancier. That was uh, better. I'm going to pirouette into a less beautiful story, not because bad things happen, but just because this might creep you out. But here we go. Uh, I Okay, I'll preface this. I'm so nervous right now. I, no, I recently read an article in Apollo magazine about this and was like, lol, what? I'm low-key obsessed. Sometimes your Google Now feed or whatever, or Google News feed, like, gives you a real treat that really is your brand. Have you ever heard of figurative jewelry? Nah. Nope. No clue what that is. Have you ever heard of the custom of giving a lock of hair to someone as a gesture of romance, such as in the cinematic masterpiece of Greece, when Jan asks, what did she give him? And Marty answers, a lock of hair from her chest. I have heard of this. It's okay. very old. I I did not know that that quote from Greece though, and I'm you upset. didn't. That's immediately no. what I thought of. <laughs> okay. Well, so there's like the custom of 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 giving somebody a lock of hair as a totem of love, if you will. But back in the day, it wasn't just like snip snip here's a lock of hair sometimes it was but it was a little extra because these were souvenirs of romance it's a way to remember me while you're not near me etc it's a i don't know a thing to sniff like the guy in charlie's angels Um, (laughs) oh my god thank you for that you're welcome you'd you would fashion it into a piece of jewelry this is one example of figurative jewelry the desire it's the whole thing is that it's the like a desire of of material closeness when you're far apart from the one you love it's a way to hold them close you would put a hair memento in like a locket it's like a friendship bracelet where the heart is cut in half and each one gets half of it yeah it's bodily thing yeah but it's like dead cells that you cut from your head um (laughs) swoon swoon so this has been popular since the Middle Ages, at least, with with the hair thing. Simple rings and lockets were fashioned out of hair or, like, contained hair. Um, 
There were fanciful woven designs in brooches and wreaths. Wait, what was the word you just said? I said brooches, but brooches. I just like to say a, a brooch. A brooch. Uh, they, they were popular because they could be made at home and made simply and affordably. So anyone could give their love a lock of hair. Also, I don't know what it is with hair. Combs were also given as love tokens. Combs were a thing. What's the... And I think it's because they, like, held some of the hair and then it would, like, smell like you or I don't know. We were very into our hair-related love tokens in the (laughs) Middle Ages. There's, um, in in The Knight of the Cart, which is a 12th century piece of literature, Lancelot finds a comb that preserves some of the hair of of Queen Guinevere and is like, yum, 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 yum. I'm making. Charles I'm Angels. gonna make it weird. Um, <laughs> it is. It is Lean weird. into it. I'm gonna make it weirder. In in the Elizabethan and Jacobian eras, it became a symbol of both love and bereavement. So it wasn't just here's the lock of hair from my ch- from her chest because <laughs> I love you. It was also used to kind of immortalize loved ones lost. So that's why if you, like, try to look up stuff like this on eBay, I don't know why you would, they're often labeled mourning jewelry because that was another name for it, was that it was, like, mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I was just going to say. Nap, quick confession. I can't stop thinking about your birthday cake from last year. Oh, the one from ECBG Cake Studio? Is that where that delicious custom cake was from? Yep, but ECBG does more than cake. They help everyone celebrate the moments that matter. They believe in equality and community and that ordinary moments should be celebrated too. Not just extraordinary people's birthdays. Wink. They even have online baking classes. Mm, They sound dreamy. You know, if you're still dreaming of that cake, you should check out at ECBG underscore studio on Instagram or their website, ECBG Studio. Now, uh, yeah, so that's what you might find it on the Ebays for. Another example of figurative jewelry are, and I should have looked up how to pronounce this, Fetty rings or Feedy rings? If you, if you speak Italian, you can correct me. It's back in the Roman period. The name arrived derived from the Italian Mani and Fetti, Fidi, or hands in faith. How do you say faith in Italian? That's the word I'm trying to say with my mouth hole right now. Uh, oh, fi, fide? No. I don't know. But so the rings are rings featuring two clasped hands. They were a marker of trust, exchange, uh, or just, or they were used as wedding rings. They sometimes were just the, marked the union of marriage. They were very popular wedding or betrothal rings in Georgian and Victorian periods. Jewelers began to design them. I feel like I should have talked about clotter rings before this because I think they technically predate that. But oops, <laughs> we're talking about these. Well, they're Roman period too. Whatever. Jewelers like would design them as a set of interlocking hoops. The clasped hands often opened to reveal a heart or two hearts fused together because the practice of marriage in England and a lot of places in England, for example, it wasn't standardized until 1753. So the whole exchanging of ring things that we do now was not a thing. 
Some people did that. If they could afford rings, maybe they would do that. But there were a bunch of different traditions. And it very... You can't just, like, do the ring check and know, like, nah, yeah. they yeah. married. Yeah. You can't be you can't be cruising for singles at the bar and, and check to see if that handsome so-and-so has a ring on their finger. Because there were different <laughs> customs, including hand fasting with or without rings. Uh, at my wedding, we did a hand fasting uh, ceremony in addition to the rings, where your hands are like bound together with a with a ceremonial cloth. Or in Ukrainian tradition, it's usually a beautiful embroidered cloth. This is also a kind of an example of this. As I mentioned, our clotter rings. I also kind of did a little deep, di- a little a little dippity dive into the origin of clotter rings of which there are three potential stories because of course there are one is kind of the one that people are like this one's factual and the other ones are like isn't this a nice story <laughs> a lot but, of asterisks mm-hmm. clotterings believed were believed to have originated in the fishing village situated near the shore or the clotter of galloway bay the ring if you're not familiar with the clotter ring they are they show two hands holding a heart which wears a crown so there's a little crown on top of a heart two hands are holding it and this motif is explained in the phrase let love and friendship reign clatterings were used for wedding rings by a small community for over like 400 years they're a little more mainstream now there's meaning, so you could do a ring check with the clotter ring, but if you saw a clotter ring, it could mean a bunch of different things. Yeah, hit me with all of these because everyone's like, it's this way. No, it's this way. I was like, just wear a fucking ring. It matters which way the heart or the crown is pointing, and it matters which hand it's on. So the short version is if the owner of the ring is wearing it with the crown pointing towards the nail of your finger he or she is said to be in love or married. So it just means you're spoken for. If you're wearing the ring with the heart pointing towards your fingernail, you're unattached. On the right hand with the heart towards a fingernail, it means that you're single and might be looking for love. On the right hand with it, with it pointed to the, sorry. If it's on your right hand, you're not married or engaged. And then it just becomes, if the crown is facing your fingernail, it means that you might be in a relationship, but it's not bound by law. It's complicated. It's complicated. Update my status to point of the heart towards the wrist. (laughs) Crown towards the nail. It's complicated. Hey girl, where's your crown facing? Mine are in my mouth. Are we not (laughs) talking about that kind of crown? (laughs) Uh, And then on the left if it's on your left ring finger with the point of the heart towards the fingertips, you're engaged, but not married. If it's on the left hand with the crown towards the fingertips, you're married. So I found it in two different ways. So mm-hmm. basically what I'm saying is you're going to have to do a ring check and then you're going to have to Google that ring check. If it's a <laughs> ring. Are we facing north or south? What is going yeah. on? <laughs> Are we in the northern hemisphere or the southern which way is the wind blowing? Is Mercury in retrograde? <laughs> oh, shit. Because then everything's the opposite of what you think it is. The stories of the origin of the cluttering. One, it takes place in the 1500s, and it's the story of Margareth, which is a name that I'm here for. Margareth Joyce of the Joyce clan. She married a Spanish merchant named Domingo de Rona, 
went with him to Spain. He died, but he left her a large sum of money. She returns to Ireland, marries Oliver Ogfrench, the mayor of Galway, uses the money from her first marriage that she inherited to build bridges in Connacht and one day an eagle drops the clotter ring into her lap as a reward. So it's like for 80% of that story, I'm like, yeah, this is reasonable. And I'm like, okay, now you're bringing eagles in? I don't know. Another origin story, this one doesn't even have dates attached to it. So it's <laughs> super believable. Tells the story of a prince who fell, fell for a common maid and to convince her father that his feelings were genuine, he designed a ring with hands representing friendship, a crown representing loyalty, and a heart representing love. He proposed with this ring, and after hearing the explanation of the symbolism of the ring, her father freely gave his blessing. The third version of the legend, which is the one that people are like, this one seems, we're going to go with this one, is that a man named Richard Joyce, also Joyce clan, left this left his town to work in the West Indies, intending to marry his love when he returned. But his ship was captured, and he was sold as a slave to a Moorish goldsmith. In Algiers, where he was working with his new master, he was trained in goldsmithing. And then, when William III became king, so we've got to be in the late 1600s, because William III takes a crown in 1688, he... But which way was his crown facing? Oh, no! Oh, no. <laughs> where was the sun... And where, which way was the crown facing? And had he eaten that morning? There were still 13 star signs back then, too. Oh, no. Oh, no. We'll never know. But William III demanded that the Moors release all British prisoners. So, jo- so Joyce is set free. But the goldsmith is like, you're good at this. And I know that, like, you've kind of been my slave. But, um... Why don't you stay? And if you stay, you can, I don't know, marry my daughter and have half of my wealth because you're good with the gold. And I feel like if someone uh, holds you in slavery for a while, you should then give them all of your things or half your things. So regardless. Yeah. Yeah. That seems not fair, but a little bit. Despite this generous offer. (laughs) Richard Joyce is like, nah, I want to go home to my true love who is waiting for me. And he had forged a ring as a symbol of his love while he was working, while he was indentured uh, with this Moorish goldsmith. And the Was it it one ring to rule them all? One ring to find them? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm just... Something, something bind them. It would would have been better if I had actually known the, the poem. Listeners, since podcasting is a visual medium, know that the second cast started with one ring to rule them all. I just facepalmed very hard. If you listen very closely, you can probably hear it. You can hear (laughs) my palm make contact with my nose because it was a full facepalm. But yeah, (laughs) the point being that the clotter ring is associated with the Joyce family two out of three times the way you tell it. And in general, historically speaking, folks attribute the motif to the Richard Joyce story. Mm -hmm. Now it gets creepy again because like Fetty rings and like graffiti, whatever they are and clotter rings. Cool. There are hands on it. Whatever. Figurative jewelry, figures of hands. Have you heard of eye miniatures? (laughs) What? 
<laughs> that is the appropriate reaction. Eye miniatures, or lover's eyes, were fashionable in the 1700s, the late 1700s. They were more upper class because what they were is they were teeny tiny portraits of just your eye. Just one. Got to pick one. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. It was just like like one of those like like a pocket watch locket of like I'm just going to look at your eye. Basically, it's just that people had them on rings, people had them in lockets, people had them in brooches. They <laughs> captured the sitter's eye and brow never gonna leave you without a brow that's just gonna that's that's making it too weird maybe occasionally occasionally a curl or a sliver of nose Ooh, so natalie you were getting hot and heavy right a curl a nose sliver listen my nose is too big to ever have just a sliver of But when I'm wearing these headphones, you know I have my single curl down, just ready to be captured by an artist in a little eye miniature portrait. (laughs) The story of eye miniatures are linked to the forbidden relationship between Mrs. Maria Fitzherbert and George Prince of Wales. So this story kind of echoes the second story of the Clottering story to an extent. She was a Catholic. Also, uh, George Prince of Wales was the future George IV for those, you know, keeping track of their Georges at home. She was a Catholic and a commoner to very big strikes against her in the eyes of the monarchy. The prince, though, still pursued her and even threatened suicide if she wouldn't have him. That's super toxic. Yeah, that's not a good look. But back then, it was, like, super romantic. Yeah, I guess. apparently. <laughs> uh, she fled the country when he proposed, which I think was actually, like, we can't be together, so I'm going to distance myself from you. Yeah. But it sounds very much like, you just threatened to kill yourself if I can't be with you. This is toxic. I'm leaving. I'm removing yes. myself. It sounds, honestly, healthier for her than it probably was. So he sends her a parcel abroad with a small painting of a single eye and wrote, quote, If you have not totally forgotten the whole countenance, I think the likeness will strike you. He's watching her? He's literally like, I got my Uh-oh. eye on you. Uh-oh, it's feel like. Uh, shortly after (laughs) she returns to england secretly marries him gave him a matching painting of one of her own eyes uh but the wedding wasn't considered valid due to the lack of royal consent but eye portraits were super popular like i said a ring a bracelet a stick pin a pendant a brooch also it worked like the eye got her (laughs) <laughs> man i was thought i was done with this guy but he sent me a painting of just one of his eyes and a sliver of that nose and i i just couldn't stay away but what was crazy about eye portraits is that the the eye of the like the subject whose eye it was was a mystery you couldn't tell who it was by just one eye but like if you knew you knew if it was like your lover's eye you'd be like mm-hmm, give me that eye but to everyone else, they're just like, who is it? Oh, my gosh, a mystery. People said that it represented kind of like we were saying of like, somebody's watching me. That it exchanging these eyes was a way to see a loved one and be seen by a loved one. The gazing eye 
however, also evoked a vigilant stare to remind the wearer to be faithful while their loved one was away. Which, I mean, what is a what is a wedding ring other than a tiny handcuff for your finger? <laughs> that not the the handcuff part or the watching you, but the that just reminds me of that sliver of mirror that Aberforth is looking in. Spoilers: It's Aberforth in the mirror uh, to give Harry advice and help in Harry Potter. Spoiler alerts. Not to the level of detail that you just did. <laughs> it was literally you could just see one eye. He's like Dumbledore. Is that you? Yeah. It was Aberforth. They the look so much alike. They mostly went out of fashion. Can't imagine why. By the 1840s. In fact, I'm going to bring it back to some Brit lit for you. In Dombey and Son by Charles Dickens, an eye miniature is used to portray a character as being like spinsterish or like out of date. Like it's a relic. Oh, mm-hmm. you're so out of the game. You used an eye miniature. But. <laughs> Sick burn, Dickens. Thick burn. <laughs> sick, sick Dickens burn. Sickens burn. <laughs> I went too far. <laughs> but then Queen Victoria, so they're out. They're kind of out of fashion. And Queen Victoria, oh boy, did she love her figurative jewelry. She commissioned several throughout the 1850s after Prince Albert's death. Well, because, oh boy, did she love her husband. Yeah. Like, that is one of the few monarch stories where they, like, actually liked each other and were good to each other. Yeah. And she was overwhelmed with grief when when he died. And so she had a lot of mourning jewelry to embody her grief and remind (laughs) her, literally embody her grief. Literally, literally pieces of jewelry manufactured to look like parts of his body her grief (laughs) i'm just picturing her waking up in the morning and going to her jewelry box like hmm what what am i going to wear today albert no not his eye Ooh, his hair no i'll post a picture for sure on on instagram at shared pod because there are some in um in museums that belong to queen victoria that are that involve like an eye portrait and a curl of hair. Like they're very, they're very beautiful, but they're, it's also weird to me. Did you know Queen Victoria also popularized the white dress for weddings? I did not. Yeah. Just a little history nugget for you guys. (laughs) Quick little history nugget. In morning jewelry though, the eye might be adorned with a pearl or a diamond teardrop as if the person that they're, memorializing is weeping for their own death because we needed to somehow make it creepier so these are super tiny so many artists didn't sign their name on them and historians are like that was probably partially because it was super tiny but also as a protection to the artist because if the exchange of these eye miniatures was a political one yeah. And somebody knew who painted the eye, then they knew they could find out whose eye it was by, I don't yeah. know, torturing them or something. Like, they could get that information. Yeah. They they had to remain a mystery. They were fashionable from roughly 1785 to the mid-19th century, a relatively short period of time when you consider time. courtship rituals and art fads so there aren't a ton of examples out there in the wild they (laughs) faded in popularity largely due to the rise of photography because portraits were Mm -hmm. one huge two expensive so if you no longer needed tons of money to have a whole portrait 
of someone. Yeah. And it no longer needed to be huge. You could just send your love a photo that you sat for like five hours while it developed while they go away to war or whatnot. Yeah. But all those ogling eyes in a gallery. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to museum and it's just... There is a Royal Miniature Society in London. And I don't know if it's still around, but there's this quote from an Alan Williams, the founder and president of the Royal Miniature Society in London in 1917. They had an exhibition and they stated, quote, after living amongst these tiny portraits for several days, I felt rather in sympathy with one adverse critic who said these ever watchful eyes made him so nervous that he wanted to get at them with a coke hammer. Wait, a what? A coke hammer, which I assume has something to do with cocaine. Because <laughs> it's 1917. That's, but if you Google coke hammer, you just find videos of hammer versus Coca-Cola and coke can hit with sledgehammer. So we'll <laughs> never know. We shall never know. Well, I guess I think Coke is also a word for coal. So maybe like it's like a that yeah. kind of hammer. I don't know. It's not about it's that. It's not about that's the a, Coke hammer. It's that's just a about different episode. being so haunted by these little tiny eyes in a gallery that you want to hit them with a hammer of some kind. Well, that's unsettling, Natalie. And thank you for that. You're welcome. I actually I actually started nerding out when you first mentioned like locks of hair because as an English major there are whole poems about it. So Alexander Pope who was writing in the 1700s he wrote a a poem called The Rape of the Lock which is basically a big old metaphor for sexual assault but Ugh. it's about a guy who steals a lock of a girl's hair without her consent and whatnot and the the badness that ensues from that and then christina rossetti who was a a british authoress poet she wrote a poem called goblin market which was again a big old metaphor about um these two young girls go to the goblin market and they've got these amazing like fruits and everything but you have to give a piece of your hair in order to get them and one of them does and it's like kind of slut shamey and oh you're giving your body for whatever it's very interesting yeah um, and so i thought of that also i don't know if it's in sense and sensibility the book or just the movie because i've watched the movie so much that i cross them over a lot which movie takes, the... uh i think it's the kate winslet version Okay, where Willoughby takes a lock of her hair. Okay. I mean, not the I would, only one. There's a BBC version. No, I'm saying the it's the only one. Oh, the BBC one's ver- version is good? Real good. Yeah. Okay. Because normally I'm like, I have the version of Jane Austen ones, the books that I will watch. And then the other one doesn't exist to yes. me. Uh, I've not seen the BBC <laughs> version. I will have to now. I mean, I would take a lock of Kate Winslet's hair. So. Yeah, I get it. Except Kate, you need to you need to lock it up, all right? Sensibility must have sense. <laughs> we can learn a lot from Eleanor and we can learn a lot from Marianne. You need to find the middle ground. Yep. Spoilers, I just gave you gave away sense and sensibility. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiling sense and sensibility. That's a book. That's like a sequel. Mm-hmm. Spoiling sense and sensibility. 
Um, no, that's that's such a that's such an interesting topic to do because, like, like I said, like I had read about that in you know random poems and stuff, or like seen it in movies, but to actually go through the history of that is it's it's not something you would think of. To where did this originate from? Like, oh, it now progressed into tiny portraiture. The article that I read about it was mostly about in quarantine times that like we can look at people's faces on zoom or we can look at pictures of people on our phones all the time but when we were forced apart before we had access to those it was a photograph and before that it was these portraits of just an eye because that's all you could really carry with you it's an interesting article and then also it made me just be like why and also should we bring these back well and and it's so funny because with all the technology and how much more advanced we are now and oh if if someone's on the other side of the world to me i can just go fly and see them Mm -hmm. um we are now in this precarious situation where yeah we can zoom and we can facetime and we can send pictures immediately but that is it and Mm -hmm. there is that kind of like I can't be with you, but this small semblance of you seeing you physically, whether it's a drawing or a Zoom call, it does a lot. It gives you that kind of like some semblance of connection when yeah. you can't physically be there. And it's really interesting that that is something that we are still dealing with now. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's, I think it's also interesting when it's, there's something as creepy as it is, there is still something like more romantic about a painting of an eye or like mm-hmm. your hair woven into a friendship bracelet. Please don't send me your hair woven. Into a <laughs> Cass, we don't need it. It's I will send you mail. a painting of my eye though. <laughs> It'll get there just in time for Valentine's day. Ooh, some ideas for everybody for Valentine's day. Um, however, because I mentioned the, I should mention because I mentioned the clotter rings, there's an old Irish superstition that holds that it's unlucky to accept a lock of hair from a lover. So they're like, the clotter rings are fine. Keep your hair on your head, you crazy bitch. <laughs> and your chest. And keep it on your chest. <laughs> but I don't know. Did your did your parents do the thing where like they kept like, a lock of your hair as a baby? I don't my, know if my mom did, but I'm also positive she did. My sister had these like gorgeous, amazing curls as a little girl. And I remember my mom... When my sister went to get a haircut once, she like picked up one of the curls and I don't think she has it anymore, but it was like, I didn't think that was weird just because it was like a beautiful curl. Yeah. And I guess, cause I had watched a lot of movies from a very young age where that's hair is a, a token. Having like a lock of hair from your baby or whatnot, or keeping one in a keepsake book was one super common, but two, there's a superstition attached to it that it's good luck. So I don't know. I don't know. One time I cut my, well, I've cut and donated my hair multiple times. And one time I did it after high school and my mom was supposed to donate it and she was going to send it in because it was after high school. So I didn't send any of my own mail. Right. And years later, I found a Ziploc bag of my own ponytail. She just like hadn't gotten around to sending it in. And I was like, how long is that good for? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of dead. The second anyway. it's cut, but yeah. yeah, I don't know if it was later sent in or if we if it was tossed. But sorry, Pantene, beautiful lengths. 
you didn't get my hair then and you won't get it now because now I always donate it to children with hair loss. Which is probably the best one to do. Yeah. But yes, so I'm going to now start painting miniatures of my eyes and a sliver of nose and a wisp of curl and check you know, that, if, just check the mail. Dear readers, if you want to email us a picture of your eye or a lock of your hair, or maybe just questions, corrections, or suggestions. Skip those first ones. Can they do that, Natalie? Oh, they can. And the if you're skipping the first ones, the, la- the latter is invited. You can send questions, corrections, or suggestions to sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. But, you know, we're going to show you some beautiful videos of Maria Tall Chief dancing and... Some maybe scary pictures of eye miniatures. And you know where they can find those, Cass. Uh, yeah, they're going to be on our Instagram and our Twitter, at SharedPod. Maybe Natalie and I will each take a picture of our eye and, and put them on the gram and scare the world. Yup, <laughs> with no explanation. Our, our, our friend Alex Virgilio sang a beautiful song to me once about me and it was she's got steve buscemi eyes because i kind of my eyes are a little bit goggly and when i really want to they just pop right out so you know if we want maybe i'll send you a steve buscemi eye please send me just one i can't have two of those watching me just no just one one and you know what's crazy cass what's crazy nat this episode is nearing the end of the season yep that's true we have four episodes left after this episode that you're listening to right now but no way yes way but we also have some little bonus episodes that maybe you haven't heard and if you miss us when we're gone or if you just miss us between episodes you can listen to those by heading over to patreon.com slash arcade audio. And if you become a Patreon patron for, I think it's at least the $5 a month level, you get access to bonus episodes from us, which we've been doing a bunch of little local episodes, but also you get access to bonus episodes from all the other podcasts. So check it out. Patreon.com slash arcade audio. We will see you there, but we will... Share ya later! Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.